Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Process, but uh, I'm thankful for him and, and his friendship and how he's always uh, pushing me out of my comfort zone to uh, to do this to do this and I tell you uh, I've had a lot of friends in my life I've never had too many friends that actually was concerned about what was best for me and what they pushed me and they pushed me to to keep striving to do what was what would would what they felt that I was I need to do that was best for me and I just want to say thank you to my pastor for that and so uh, with that being said let's uh, let's pray Father we thank you God for this time together we thank you for your word God Father I just I, I do not want to to dishonor you or your word tonight God I so I ask that if I say anything that or even start to say anything, that you would stop my mouth immediately. God, I ask that everything that I say here tonight would be for the good of those hearing and for your glory. That's all I, I want to do, God, is to glorify you, to help others, God. And I ask that you would help me to do that. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Although we'll be looking, we'll be looking at the chapter as a whole, uh, the lesson that I've prepared is going to be uh, focused mainly on verses 17 through 32. Verses 17 through 32. So if you would, please. Join me in the reading in honor of God's word. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your, ser- your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you, you killed the fat calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is, is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, if any of you guys have been in church for very long, you, you're very familiar with this story. Uh, this is the parable commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. But what I want to do tonight, I want to come at it with a different perspective because I don't actually think that this parable is about the prodigal son at all. I believe that, that it's been mis mistitled. I think that this parable is actually about the older son. And so I want to show you that tonight. So if you would, look with me. I want you to look with me uh, back at the first of the, of the uh, chapter, at verses 1 through 3. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. So he told them this parable. So what this whole chapter this is about is this about Jesus responding to the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're grumbling. And so... And actually, the older son in this parable represents the Pharisees and the scribes. And so that's why I believe that. So these verses set the whole stage for the rest of this chapter. Uh, this whole chapter is Jesus' response to the scribes and Pharisees who were grumbling that he was receiving sinners and the older son. And, and I'm sorry, with the people that Jesus was associating with because they didn't keep the Jewish law. They didn't think that the tax collectors and sinners deserved God's favor, that that was only reserved for the Jews, that they, they were legalistic. They thought that you could actually earn God's love. And so they believed that the law was, was what made someone righteous and reconciled someone to God. They thought that they were the only ones who knew God and were reconciled to him because they kept the law. But what they didn't realize was that God wasn't impressed by their self-righteous deeds. As Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A polluted garment, or as some translations would say, is uh, filthy rags, which I like better because what this represents, uh, filthy rags in these days would be actually be claws that were used by, by women during their menstrual cycle. And so this would tell you, this kind of... Uh, this should give you an idea of what God thinks about our own righteous works. And so Jesus addresses their concerns as we will see in this chapter. But before we start, I just want to remind you guys why Jesus used parables. Because I think this is important. To know this, to understand, first, we know that when Jesus was asked why he spoke in parables by his disciples in Matthew chapter 13, he responds by saying in verse 11, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. And he continues in verse 13, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, 
nor do they understand. So what exactly does this mean? I, I couldn't explain it that good, so, but I liked a, uh, a quote that I've seen from a commentary that Barclay wrote. He says, The parable conceals truth from those who are either too lazy to think or too blinded by prejudice to see. It puts the responsibility fairly and squarely on the individual. It reveals truth to him who desires truth, and it conceals truth from him who does not wish to see the truth. So parables actually do two things. They open the eyes of those who want, wanted to hear, but they close the eyes of those who were hostile to the truth. For those who had a genuine hunger for God, they were profound divine truths that were understood. But for those who didn't believe, who rejected Christ's, Christ's teachings, they couldn't understand the true meaning because they didn't want to hear it. They were too blinded by their traditions. So, so with that in mind, let's take a look at the text. And so we're going to start back up in verses 4 through 7. What Jesus is doing here, he starts off with the parable of the lost sheep. And essentially, and I'm just paraphrasing, he asked them, so if you had 100 sheep and you lost one, would you not go and search for that, for that lost sheep? And when you found it, would you not rejoice? And of course, the Pharisees at that point was like, well, yeah, we would, we would definitely rejoice over that. And so Jesus says, just so there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he continues the next parable, the parable of the lost coin. Okay, what about the woman who lost a coin, which in those days was actually, was, it's called a denarii, it's actually uh, equal to a, a day's wage. So he, and he asked him, he said, what about the woman that lost the coin? If she, if she lost it, wouldn't she search day and night until she found it? And when she found it, would she not rejoice with her friends that she found it? And, of course, the Pharisees would be like, well, yeah, I'm sure they would do that. And, again, he says, just so, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what is Jesus doing here? So what Jesus is doing here is revealing what is in their hearts by showing them how they, sh how they respond when they lose their possessions. Now he's about to start into his main story in order to show them God's heart and how he responds to his lost possessions. So if you would look at verses 11 through 16 with me. Starting at verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his, to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So, first, I would say that this would be a very shameful request in these days because the older son received, actually received two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son received one-third of the inheritance. But this wasn't so, supposed to be something they got until after the, the father died. So, essentially, what the son is telling this father is, you're already dead to me. I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. Give me what is mine, and I can take care of myself. So this would, been, have been, would have been a very disrespectful and gritty thing for a son to do. And so he continues, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. 
And there he squandered his property in reckless living. It says that he went into a far country. This means that he actually left, would have left Israel. He would have gone into, he would have left the covenant community. He would have actually went and hung out with Gentiles. Jews didn't hang out with Gentiles in those days. If they even came into contact with a Gentile, they would have to wash themselves because they were thought of as those were who were unclean. So then he continues, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he, he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens in that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So now we see that not only did he hang out with Gentiles, he actually worked with one. Not only that, he worked on a pig farm. Jewish boys in those days, they didn't associate with swine in any shape, form, or fashion. And so, they were actually, and they were actually forbidden from having anything to do with him because uh, they were, so, they, they too were known to be unclean. So, so I'm sure at this point that the scribes, the Pharisees. Even those in the, in the crowd listening would have just been standing there with disbelief because what Jesus has created here is a story that is just would have, been, would have totally been offensive to everyone hearing it. He, uh, a, a story describing a son who would have disgraced his family and his village. He was greedy and disrespectful, and he was greedy and disrespectful to his father. So why is Jesus telling them this story? Why is he taking the time to describe a son that is the worst of the worst in that day? Because the Pharisees believed that someone could be in right standing with God just, just by keeping the law. But the problem was they didn't understand the law. They were self-righteous. They only kept the law in order to look righteous in front of others, not because they actually love God and people. And so this is why Jesus tells them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are, f but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus was showing them that just being a Jew or keeping the law itself didn't make someone righteous. That God is not a respecter of persons. He has ransomed people for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as it says in Revelation 5. He's showing them that it was actually what was in your heart that mattered. If you remember, Jesus explained this on the Sermon of the Mount when he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit murder. But I say, if you are angry with your brother or sister, that you have already committed murder in your heart. And the same with adultery. If you even look at someone with lust, you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. So this is what the Pharisees didn't get. They didn't understand that the problem they had was a heart problem. Jesus is telling them that in order for them or anyone else to do what is pleasing to God, they, they first needed a new heart. They had to be born again. Just as, he tell, just as Jesus tells Nicodemus when he met with him. 
He says, you must be born again. And that, that was only possible by God's grace. Only God can take out that hard, selfish, self-righteous heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that he can work in and change to cause us to be more like Christ. The Pharisees didn't want to see this. They thought that they could earn it. They, they couldn't see that it wasn't their righteous deeds that God, that God wanted, but that God wants a heart that realizes its need for him. And that is, that is submitted to him, and that sees the only righteousness that they have is the righteousness, righteousness that God has provided through Christ. And that's only available by grace through faith. And so what, what was the problem? Their problem was they didn't grasp grace. So with that being said, what does it look like to truly grasp grace? I have four points that I would like to make for this from this text. Number one, grasping grace recognizes our own unworthiness. If you'll, if you'll look at uh, verses 17 through 19, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It says here that the son came to himself. He came, it, that means he came to his senses. He, he actually saw reality for what it really was. This also happens, we see this happen with Peter in Acts 12, when an angel of the Lord came to rescue him from prison. It says that Peter didn't know if it was real or if it was a vision. But as soon as the angel left, it tells us that when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. God, by his grace, opened his eyes to the truth. This is what happened to the younger son. He realized that he was in need. Now, anyone can realize that they are in need, but he also realized that he needs someone to save him, that he couldn't do it on his own. He realized that his father had salvation to offer him. This is what it truly looks like to be found to be truly repentant, to, to turn away from relying on yourself and trying to be your own savior. It would have been easy for him in his misery to blame his father for the condition that he was in. He could have, he could have blamed his father for sending him away with a lot of money and not teaching him how to, how to use it. Or he could have been like Adam in the garden whenever uh, Eve had given him the fruit God confronted him about it, about eating the fruit. And what did he say? He said it was the woman. Not only was it the woman, it's the woman that you gave me. He's, so he's trying to put the blame on God for that. So, but this is not what the son did. He didn't make up excuses. He, he realized that it was him who was to blame, that the condition he was in was his own fault because he had sinned, not only against his father but against God. Before, he didn't want anything to do with his father. Actually, and we see that it, it requires humility before we can reach this point. It says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The legalism of the Pharisees kept them blinded from seeing their need for God's grace for true repentance. They thought that they could be righteous by themselves. Their pride kept them from seeing their need 
for a Savior. And this is the same condition that we are all in. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 3, 12, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But praise God for his grace. Because in his goodness, not just our badness, leads us to repentance. Says, tells us in Romans 2, 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's grace leads us to repentance by revealing his great love and our great sin. Thanks be to God for his kindness. Amen. Number two, grasping grace recognizes the Father's compassion. Verses 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring him quickly the best robe and put it on him and put, on a, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. If you'll notice, you'll see that the son had prepared a speech for his father. He, he was ready to plead for his father's mercy. But his father didn't, didn't need him, didn't need his explanation. He knew that since he returned home that he had repented and came and ran. So his father ran to him and embraced him. Even in the hall of his pig filth, and even though he had been hanging out with Gentiles, he still showed him compassion by embracing him. It tells us that the father ran to him. Now, according to Jewish law, the son would have been shamed when he returned to the village because he had brought disgrace to his family. I think this is why the father ran to his son and made him look. He took everyone's eyes off the son and made him look at him instead. It would have been disgraceful to see an older Jewish man in those days to be running. So the father actually takes the shame on himself. What a great picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king of kings stepped down out of glory, lived a sinless life for us, and died a shameful death on a cross. That's a very shameful thing in those days because that's only, that's only for criminals, and we all know Jesus was the farthest from the criminal. He was the most sinless, innocent person to ever live. Then he tells, his, he tells his servants to bring the best robe and put a ring on his hand. This was, this was to honor him and to show him that he was loved. And, and we also see the son had prepared to come home. The son was prepared to come home and to be a servant to his father. Instead of his son, he, 
He was prepared to earn his way back into a relationship with, with his father, but his father refused to let, him, let that happen. He didn't want his works. He wanted to show him compassion. Number three, grasping grace recognizes we can't earn reconciliation. Verses 25 through 31. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, drew near to the house. And drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fat calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. So what, is this, so what does this remind you of? The Pharisees, right? This is the part where Jesus is confronting the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse, verse 29, we see that the older son was upset by what his father was doing. He thought that he had earned his father's favor and that his brother didn't deserve his father's forgiveness or his mercy. This is exactly what we see in the Pharisees. They didn't think the tax collectors and sinners deserved forgiveness because they didn't earn it. They didn't realize that just, justification is by grace alone through faith alone. Legalism is always something that we have to be careful not to fall into. It's, it's easy for us, if we're not careful, to start to think that we have to earn God's love by doing good works or, or that we are better than someone else or more spiritual because of our good deeds. Um, I believe that this is one of the biggest reasons why we struggle with uh, assurance of salvation. Because I say that because... We, we always look at ourselves and we see that we, weren't, we aren't reading our Bibles like we should be. We ain't pray, we're not praying like we should be. And we, are, we, start, and, uh, or we can't pray like, brother, like Pastor Leonard. So we start comparing ourselves to those around us. We start condemning ourselves because we don't love God enough. And uh, let me assure you, you don't. None of us do. None of, uh, and if we continue to focus on ourselves, we will always walk in self-condemnation. I forgot who said it, but I, 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 seen a, I love a great quote that says, for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong here. I don't, I'm not saying that, that works aren't important. But we just have to understand that our works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of it. As it tells us in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in him, walk in them. It's important that we always recognize that our works are done only by grace and grace alone through faith. Number four, grasping grace produces rejoicing. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you'll notice that each of these parables end in celebration for one sinner who repents, but the Pharisees couldn't comprehend how this was happening, how people were getting right with God without earning it. They were too caught up in their traditions to see what God was doing. They couldn't see the gospel of grace, that the Messiah had come for the lost. And, and actually, this is the condition that we are all in. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who all want, who, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't want, I don't want you to miss this. It says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want you to recognize what this means. This means that sin is ingrained in us, in every fiber of our being. It means that we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. But what does the next verse say? The, I would argue the greatest two words in all the Scripture almost, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We rejoice because we know that Christ seeks those of his, those of those that are his, and he saves them. Jesus says in chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we can rejoice that he is a perfect Savior. We can rejoice because we have been reconciled with God. We, have, we are justified. We have been redeemed, not because of anything we have done, but because he took our place. He lived a sinless life that we couldn't. And we have the perfect substitute. That should cause us all to rejoice. Amen.